Meet me in James chapter one. And as you get there, allow me to sort of frame up our time. My assignment this morning is to continue our series, Peaks and Valleys, a series we started back in April. And the aim of the series is to explore uh, how we can live out our faith, encounter Jesus, experience the highs and lows of life, or, or, or encounter Jesus, experience him in the highs and lows of life. And as this series has went on, our times of study uh, and uh, has looked differently. Um, it's taken different shapes. My time with you in this series has been looking at literal peaks and valleys in the Bible and seeing how God had met his people in those places and gleaning from those moments uh, uh, what we can to apply in our season of life today. Other sermons in this series have been more thematic, more topical in their nature. Pastor Steve preaching on Sabbath and A.D. Uh, preaching on retreating and Pastor Ryan Walker pre preaching on lamenting. And to be completely honest with you, I felt a little left out. And so this Sunday, uh, we're going to be talking about joy. Uh, and so <laughs> jo joy is a very important characteristic of the Christian. Uh, joy is a benefit of being in the family of God. Joy is the driving force, the thing that propels us, keeps us moving forward no matter if we find ourselves in the peak of life or in the lowest valley of despair. The joy that we have in the Lord sustains, but not only sustains us, it unifies us. It knits us together, brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this is what separates us from the rest of the world. This is what proves that we are marked by his blood. Historically, this has been taught in the church. I think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question. Uh, you might know this. The question asks, what is the chief end of man? Man, we got different versions. <laughs> Mine says to know God and enjoy him forever. So we got the back part right. What is the chief end of, this is what the question is asking. What is the chief end of man? It, it is what is our ultimate purpose? What is my ultimate purpose? What is your ultimate purpose? And the answer is to know God and enjoy him forever, to enjoy him. That as we get to know him more deeply by his word and more deeply by his world, we are made fully and more deeply complete in his joy. Well, you might say to yourself, just I know plenty of happy people who aren't Christians. Uh, I know plenty of happy people who aren't Christians who, when they go through hard things, they're still pretty happy people. You might want to go outside. And, and I would say, for sure, I know them too, but are we defining joy the same way? If I could borrow a definition, one author describes joy as a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. I'll say it again for the note takers. Joy 
is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in his world. God has given his children, those who have placed their faith in him, in Christ, those who have, are living, convinced according to the scriptures that Jesus is who he says he is and that what he did with his life, his death and his resurrection is for them, he has given them a joy. He has given you a joy that he is the center and object of so that we may increase in joy by centering our lives with him, around him. When we read his word, when we experience his world, we receive more of him, which in turn makes us more happy in him. Our joy is in God, through God, and for God. He is the source of it. He is the supplier of it. You might be sitting here this morning saying to yourself, I am a Christian, but joy like that is not something I possess right now. And family, I would say that a diagnostic of your soul is needed. The check engine light is on, so to speak. If I could use some imagery there, right? What, what, what is the state of your soul as it is tied to Christ? Are you living with him, listening to him, reading his word, praying, fasting, singing, feasting? You can't feel the refreshing nature of a pool on a hot summer's day if you are not intimate with the water. If you are not in the water, submerged in its depth, partaking of the joy that God gives access to you, you know, Crosspoint, as, as one of your pastors, I, there's something that I've been praying over you. There, there, there is, I wouldn't say it's a concern, but a wonder. I know that we are a warm people. I know warmth is the one thing 10 years ago that brought me and my family here. I know that we are an inviting people, right? But I do, I do wonder, are we happy? Are we happy? I know that we're alive. I know that we're warm. I know that we're welcoming. But I do wonder, are we happy? Our text this morning are the opening words of James's book. Some of you are very familiar with these verses. Uh, but I want to argue this morning that the English translation of these four verses do not do us a service to truly captivate what it is James is telling us in this introduction. I want to break down the language of James because he writes with a particular emphasis on the experience of the believer. And I want to line that up next to our definition of joy because what James argues before us in this text is that the experience of the Christian, the outward behavior of the saint proves that the sentences they say, they believe and are true. You still with me? 
When we say that joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit that causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world, what James would remind you is that when we say in the world, it means how we experience it. How do you interact with God's creation and the remaining effects of sin? How do you interact with the sweetness and glory of good days? And how do you persevere through bad ones? James is going to tell us this morning that we have all the joy. Say all. All. Oh, say all like you meant it. We have all the joy in all the trials. All joy in all trials. That's our title for our time together. James is going to show us two things. That the attitude we have about experiences, about our trials, about our valleys, will determine how we see the advantages of them. Attitude and advantages. So if you are able, could I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear what thus saith the Lord. James chapter one, starting in verse one. It reads like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you are great and marvelous. The whole earth sings of your glory. The sun declares it in its shining. The weather shouts your care. The birds sing your song. God, we lift you high this morning. Some of us are walking in here weary, tired, hurting. Some of us happy with a pep in the step. But Lord, you chose this word for this morning. So give us ears to hear it, eyes to see your beauty, and hearts softened to receive it. Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've shared this part of my life with you all before, but I'll say it again because it's applicable to what I'm going to try to say here in a couple minutes. Um, I didn't grow up in a home with a lot of siblings. Uh, I had one brother. Um, I'm the firstborn of two. My brother is five years younger than me. He is slimmer, taller, more athletic, handsomer, wealthier, more successful in every way. I love him so much. Uh, We talk all the time. We have a great relationship. He would hate everything I just said. Uh, 
I hope he's not watching online. He's probably going to text me. Not good text message. But we, we have a shared life together, right? Uh, as much as you do with your siblings, probably. We, we've shared the same room. We've shared, uh, you know, I've handed my clothes down to him. We've shared the same toys. We've shared the same TV episodes. We've shared the same punishments. Uh, we've shared the same consequences uh, and the same successes. We, we have a shared life together. We've watched the same foods. We've, we've done all the same things that you do with your sibling. And I, and I love him. And even though there's an age gap there, I, I appreciate him. Flaws and all. Don't get me wrong. He gets on my nerves. And I have laid my hands on him. Not in prayer. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade him for anyone or anything. Uh, and I think... Because this is true, of all the relationships Jesus had with people, there's none I find more interesting than his relationship with his younger brother, James. Can you imagine the vantage point James had to Jesus to see the Messiah grow up in this world? You live with, possibly share a room with. I don't know, they had a bunch of kids. But possibly share a room with your Savior. All the things he must have seen. All the miracles that were for their eyes only. I mean, other than Mary, Joseph, and probably his other siblings, James knew Jesus the best. What's even more fascinating to me is this particular part of their relationship. James did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. James did not believe that his older brother was indeed the Christ. Could not believe it. And here's the thing you need to understand. He grew up Jewish. He knew the text. He knew what the promises were, knew that a savior was coming, heard his mother's words as she explained to them, Joseph ain't his real daddy. He was there when Jesus ran away and they couldn't find him. And they, he rolled up in the temple and he said, I'm in my father's house. He saw Jesus turn water to wine, saw him heal the sick and make the lame walk and give sight to the blind and feed the hungry. And yet James did not believe. Family, there has to be something other than facts to convince this kind of man. Something other than the truth to help him see, help him realize that his brother actually came for him. I'll say it like this. God loved James so much that he would gift him the opportunity for his savior to be his brother. Jesus was there for James. Jesus was there for his brother's sins, to sacrifice himself for his brother's iniquities, to be a propitiation between his brother and his father. Can't you see the, 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 the amazingness of this narrative? Some of you, church, you too did not believe until you could not run away anymore. Christ, in the end, outlasted you. He never gave up on you. He called you to him and you couldn't run far enough to not hear his voice anymore. See, when you have been predestined, elected, called before time was time, God's going to get you. 
And it's not going to be the same way for everybody. I'm reminded of that core team in Philippi and how they began. A small group of people in a small church in a big place. You remember how the church of Philippi was started? It started with four pillars. Paul, obviously. But there were two women and another man. One woman was Lydia. She was at a Bible study of sorts and Paul attended it one day. And once the group left, everybody left her and Paul stayed and he reasoned with her. They, they continued to have a conversation. It was intellectual in its nature. Lydia needed to be articulated into the faith. And there was a demon possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller. And Paul rolled up on them and exercised the demon out of her and she followed him. She didn't need articulation. She didn't need logic. What she needed was a supernatural experience of God to make her follow. Then there was this jailer, old retired man, now an old retired military man, now guarding this prison, which Paul is inside. And Paul is praying and singing. And you got to know he was preaching to that brother, too. And none of that was working. None of that was working. So you would think maybe something supernatural like the demon-possessed girl would bring this brother in. And wouldn't you know, as Paul is singing and praying, God strikes the jail and the walls literally fall off. That didn't save the jailer, though. Instead, he panicked. He was ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 we're not leaving. We're staying. And the jailer then was like, oh, you're for real. He didn't need logic. It wasn't even a supernatural work of something crazy miraculous. What he needed was to see Christ in somebody. Why do I bring that up? Well, James had all of that. He had articulation. He had miraculous divine encounters. He had example. I mean, what better example than Jesus himself? But James needed none of that. What he needed was the resurrection. James didn't believe until he saw with his own eyes that his brother defeated death. He did not believe the logical arguments and reasonings, did not believe the example of Jesus himself, did not believe the supernatural miracles were proof that he was the Messiah. No, not until he saw him return. Family, let's just take a note real quick. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Christ proves that he was no liar, that Christ was indeed the real deal. That his life was the payment for our sins once and for all. That he was an acceptable offering to God, able to take on the full weight of our sin. The resurrection proves that we could be passed over because the wrath of God and the justice of God was satisfied in Jesus' blood. The resurrection is your claim to the Holy Spirit who is the proof of your purchase, the proof that you have been blood-bought. He's your ticket in to the new city on on the glorious day of Christ's return. Without the resurrection family, we have nothing. We have no reason to gather, no reason to sing, no reason to hope, no reason to have joy. The everlasting, total, full, and complete joy that we have in the Lord has been purchased for us by the spent life of Christ on your behalf and mine. 
And that joy is made permanent in us by the resurrecting spirit of God now dwelling in us. It took the resurrection for James to believe. And look, look how he identifies himself in verse one. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't hear it. Consider all that we just learned. How beautiful a title. James is now convinced that Jesus is both his brother and his savior. And because so, he appropriates his title correctly. I'm James, slave to Jesus. My name is James. Jesus is Lord. Here's what I got to say. Listen, he could have flexed on his titles. You understand what I'm saying? He could have introduced himself as James, called the just, brother of Jesus, born from the same womb of the Holy Mary, disciple of Jesus, pillar of the church at Jerusalem. No. He chose to introduce himself not on the things that give him credibility, not on the things that would make him seem more appealing to listen to, but on the thing that matters the most. Consider this again. James is living in a time where they parade heredity. Where you are from, those genealogies that we find in the Bible are there for a reason. Your family matters. It's incredibly important to your rank, your appeal, your ability to be worthy of listening to, your credibility. James does not go for any of that. But the other side of that I want you to pay attention to as well. That doesn't mean that he's forsaking any of the ingredients that make him him either. His church knew who he was. His family knew who he was. His friends knew who he was. But what James is doing in this greeting is showing us the position of his attitude. James was the just, but he was he was also the straightforward. He was about that action. He was about business. I'm James, servant of Jesus. Here's what I got to tell you. And we need people like James today. We do. I know we love Paul. We need Paul's too. But we need James. You know, Paul, his writing style is like, here's the why, and then here's the how, and go and do it. And that works. Save me. James is like, if you say you save, prove it, dog. <laughs> like, if, if you read the book of James, there's reasons why theologians hated this book. Because it causes us to have no other response than action. You say you're saved, I won't believe you till you show me. You say you're saved, you say you're about this life, then prove it to me. Show me that you're so convinced that Jesus is Lord with your life. 
He doesn't just want you to say what you are and what you believe. He wants to see it in you. He wants to see how you live in it. James wants to make sure that your actions are consistent with the values and beliefs you say you got from Jesus. See, a good leader doesn't just want to hear you say the right things. A good leader wants to see if you're about it. James wants to know, you say you believe in the gospel, but have you been truly changed and transformed by it? Another interesting note in this introduction in verse one is the audience to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Who is James writing to specifically in this letter? Well, the 12 tribes. At the writing of this letter, the Jews were scattered due to many different political regimes. They were scattered across Mesopotamia and Asia Minor and Africa and Europe. The Jews were persecuted. They were refused protection by the Gentiles. They were homeless, disenfranchised, robbed of their possessions. One commentator says they had less social standing than slaves. They were subject to the Gentile elite. They were preyed upon constantly, forced into uh, courts and unfair trials. They were viewed as scum. This was the normative rhetoric and social order about them at this time. And that's James's audience. Uh, You need to keep that in your mind that he's talking to the broken, the beaten, the disenfranchised, the one living on and outside the margins. And he says to them, Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the no-nonsense, straight-to-business writing style of James. He goes right into the imperatives, which is addressing our attitude in trials even without, even without the context of who the audience is. That's an audacious sentence, isn't it? Count it all joy when you're poor. Count it all joy when you've been marginalized, when you've been let go from your job unjustly, when things said about you aren't true of you, when you've lost a loved one, when your marriage is hard, when your kids go wayward, when you're depressed, When you're anxious, when your body is failing you, count it all as joy, the audacity, the impossibility to the persecuted, marginalized, downtrodden and hurt Jews. This is surprising encouragement. James says, when you've been taken from your homes, separated from your children, beaten, shamed for your faith. Count it all joy. Read this into yourselves. Don't read this as like a guy writing to another group of people who lived once upon a time. James is talking to you. Don't look at me. Read it. Read it for yourself. Read it onto you. Count it all as joy. When you meet trials of various kinds. I don't know what you're going through. Mental illness, physical illness, divorce, broken home, grief, poverty, injustice, confusion, worry, doubt, wayward children. Whatever it is, this is a challenge to your soul. Your big brother is saying to you this morning, count it all 
as joy. Because the truth is that God is doing something in this. God is doing something to you in this. This is an, an admonishing of our attitude about trials. When we go through what we go through, we have access to face them with an upright attitude of joy. We must see our position in calamities as prompts for rejoicing. Oh, you don't have to say amen for it to be true. Something that produces deeper joy in us, or as the text says, all joy. All of the joy. Not a little bit of it. All of it. That's the actual first word in the sentence in the original language in this letter. This is what I meant about the English not really doing us well here. James' first words are all joy. It's a declaration of our emphatic position no matter what. The verse directly translated should read, all joy, esteem it when trials you fall into. And James is teaching us here that our attitude about trials can either increase our suffering in them if we believe the lie that they're purposeless, or can ease our suffering in them if we see them as productive to the plan of God. Only Kirsten heard me. That sabbatical been treating you good, huh? James is asking us, what is your attitude like when you go through what you go through? What is the position of your heart when you are metaphorically crossing through the valley of darkness? James is offering us a mercy with this reminding of our reality. He could leave us to complaining and groaning. He could leave us to believing that this is unmerited, unwarranted experiences we have to go through. We could lie to ourselves and say we don't deserve these circumstances. Or we can see every trial as a triumph. We could see every problem as a promise being fulfilled. When you go through what you go through, you can actually thank God for the trouble you're in. Oh, not everybody could do that. This is what I meant when I said joy like this is reserved for the saints. You can thank God. For the pain, you got to see it that way. All joy, esteem it when trials you fall into. That's written to keep the attitude of joy in front of your mind when you fall into trials. Our attitude has to reflect our reality. Joy, we are in joy. This is happening. Joy, work is frustrating. Joy, I don't like the traffic. Joy, it is for the big and the small. My job is difficult. My kids won't listen. I don't have the energy. Joy. Joy, joy. Uh, but I have to warn you, you could easily misread this as a command to be joyous about pain. You could read this and say, how am I supposed to smile when I need to weep? How could James say this? This is insensitive. It feels like the opposite of emotional intelligence. 
But that's not what James is saying here. He's not teaching us or instructing us to enjoy suffering. He's not teaching us to celebrate when tragedy befalls us. Don't hear that. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, James is commending the conscious embrace of the Christian understanding of life that brings joy into the trials that come because of our Christianity. It means that when we experience trials, we should respond to them with joy, not be joyful about them, not be happy about them. Yes, look who got a bad doctor's report. That's not what James is saying. He's saying we experience them in such a way that we know that though this is painful, though this is uncomfortable, though this is not my favorite, though I feel like crying, though I feel like I'm at the end of myself, I know God has not left me. God has not been indifferent to my situation, nor has he been stagnant. He is at work in this. I know this means something. It's an attitude. It's an outlook. It's a decision to receive trials as grace. You need to know, and I've said this before to you, that nothing will happen to you today that hasn't already ran through God's good and sovereign intentions. That's the source of our joy. A good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. When you see trials in this world, you can see Jesus at work in them. There's joy. It makes no sense to count it all as joy unless you have God. It makes no sense to count it all as joy unless you've been blood bought. Unless you've been saved eternally from the consequences of your sin, unless you have been wrapped in the perfect love of Jesus, you cannot see the true and beautiful advantages of trials. I'm in here all by myself. Look at verse three. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look at the way James begins this part. He says, for you know. It's literally translated to mean you already know this through your experience. Verse three is a reminder. James isn't telling you something you didn't already know. He's reminding you that the trials already experienced rightly with an attitude to count them all as joy, has produced in you the gift of steadfastness. This is a lesson you already learned. So now when you're faced with the lowest valley you have ever trekked through, you can go through it confidently that the endurance you received up to this point will take you through it and you will make it through this one because you've endured the last one. That's the Greek word for steadfastness here. It means endurance. For the Christian, the advantage of trials is in the outcome of the trial itself. Oh, come on now. The advantage of trials is in the outcome of the trial itself, which James says, you know this, endurance. Endurance. 
endurance, fortitude, patience. And here's where it gets better. The text calls the trials the testing of our faith. It mean, that means nothing you go through is purposeless. Oh. It gives the trial meaning. It gives the valley meaning. It's not to build ourselves up into a, a battle-hardened, tough, macho people. No, it's, it's to give us endurance as we're slowly conformed into the image of Jesus. That's the point of it all. The point of it is to take us to Christ. The point is that every pain is making you like him. That every battle is beating you into his mold. As Jesus was tested, so are we. As Jesus endured all that he went through for the joy that was laid before him, so will we. He is the point. He is the advantage of trials. Oh, but there's more. The word testing here is uh, dokimion. It's, it means uh, found approved. Not proving, but to be found approved. Genuine. James is not saying trials are to test your worthiness to obtain faith or your worthiness or, or for the sole purpose of obtaining endurance. No, but what he is saying is that because you have a faith that Paul says like gold, then you could withstand the fire. You can stand the test of trials and endure. And therefore, to your own soul and to those on the outside looking into you struggle, the genuineness of your faith preaches. Oh, none of y'all never been through nothing. When you have a faith that can endure with eyes fixed on Christ and his glory, that preaches something to your aching soul. Mm. Without true faith, the fire, the trial would only produce ashes. We need only to look around this room for proof. All of you are still standing. You're still here right now. Real faith endures fire. The proof. Pinch yourself is that you're alive. The faith that James is talking about here is faith caught up in Jesus. Faith that is caught up in the person and work of Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, there is nothing experienced here in this life that is meaningless. Those trials you've been through have proven your faith. You are found approved. And the one you're going through right now is going to do the same thing. They are showing that you are real. They are showing that you are genuine, that you have been found approved by God. It's building you up, not for your own kingdom, but for his. I'll close on verse four. I'll get out of your hair. I'll sit down. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The main theme of James's letter is to walk the believer into maturity. That's what he wants. 
When he wrote this letter, that was the intention he set out to accomplish, to take us deeper into the pools of maturity. And what he's saying here is because you have a faith that can stand the fire of trial, you endure them, and that endurance works. It serves a function. It does something. It labors until it has made you to be perfect and complete, or as the Greek says, mature and whole. Trials can be faced with joy because the faith, with faith, they produce endurance, and endurance doesn't stop its work. It goes and goes until a thoroughly mature Christian who lacks nothing is presented, being all that God wants you to be in the image of his son, all joy in all trials. Family, be glad of the valley. Be glad of trials. You can be both sorrowful yet always rejoicing because those fires, these fires, they mature you, grow you in your faith. And if you're in a spot where you're thinking, I don't know if I can make it out of this one, well then hear me. You can endure. You will endure. Your faith will carry you to the end of the race. You will see Jesus. You will be caught up with him in glory to a new place where there will be no more trial, be no more pain, be no more need to endure. You'll have made it to the end. Stand with confidence, family, for you cannot be pushed down by trials. Oh, but I need to be clear with you again. This ain't for everyone. This doesn't apply to everyone. I wish it did. I wish it did. But James says in verse two, I like the CSB version here because even though brothers assumes women, the CSB just says women. Verse two, count it all joy. Who? My brothers and sisters for the, for the CSB. Count it all joy. My brothers and sisters, he's talking to a specific people. This is only for those who have their faith wrapped up in Christ. The advantages of trials come only to those whose attitude about them are found in the joy they have in the Lord. Otherwise, stuff is just stuff. Pain is just pain. And what you go through has no specific intended meaning. You'll just die with a couple more life lessons. When James says, my brothers and sisters, he's talking about the church. The messy, broken, hypocritical, incomplete church. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, you don't know where you have your place, you don't know where you have your faith placed in, or you might be here this morning knowing for certain you're not a Christian. And friends, the reality is this these promises, they could be yours today. This Jesus, who makes all suffering, all trials mean something, can be yours. He can be Lord of your life right now. And if you're on the fence, get off. Don't wait. 
Don't believe uh, when you get it all together, that's when you can come into the family of faith. That never happens. You and I, we were, we were born into sin. We have a sin issue we cannot purchase our way out of. And he's calling you this morning, like he called me in that jail cell in 2020, 2020, 2012, excuse me, to be his this morning, tugging on you to run back to him so that fear cannot have you, so that shame could never be your name, so that sorrow could never make you sorry. When the Lord calls you to him, you can't outrun him. You can't outrun him. He will outlast you. Don't run. Instead, come. Come to Jesus. It won't change the fact that you have valleys. But he'll change how you go through them. In the darkest times of your life, may you sing and we sing together the words of that beautiful hymn. When darkness seems to hide its face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. (laughs) 